Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 34. Great show this week. I'm really excited. Been looking forward to it for weeks, actually. But uh, before I can introduce my guest, let me hawk my Counterpunch wares here like a carnival barker as I am. Um... Counterpunch. Come and get your Counterpunch. Hot off the presses. We are now producing a bi-monthly magazine. So it's six issues a year, but it is longer. It is better. The artwork is excellent. The columns are great. I'm super excited that they're now, uh, that Counterpunch is now going to be moving to this regular bi-monthly extended version. Great way to support Counterpunch is to subscribe to that print magazine. For God's sake, how many print media media outlets are there anymore, especially one that's worth supporting financially. So think about it. If you care about Counterpunch, if you're going to the website regularly, if you're reading the articles there, as I do, as many other people, as listeners of this program do, this is a great way to not only support Counterpunch, but to get something really great out of it. I love having the uh, magazine stacked on my desk. I look through them. Matter of fact, I look through the old ones as well. Also, Counterpunch Radio is a great resource. I would appreciate anybody who pushes it to their friends, gives us positive reviews on iTunes, help bring the podcast to many more people. Always really appreciate it. Thank you again for the positive feedback I've been getting. All of that is really great. Now, all of that out of the way, let me turn to my guest this week. I'm, as I said, really excited to speak with him, uh, Douglas Lane. Douglas is the publisher of Zero Books. He is a novelist. He is a podcaster. I would say a famous podcaster, if I could go so far as to say that. The old Diet Soap podcast was great. The Zero Books podcast, you should check it out. But, of course, principally, he is a novelist, and his new book, After the Saucers Landed, which we're going to be talking about today, is absolutely amazing. His uh, his other book, Billy Moon, you got to pick up a copy of that as well. DouglasLane.com, you can find his stuff there. Douglas Lane, Doug, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate you coming on. This is, um, well, I guess I've said it twice, but I'll reiterate that I'm excited to speak with you. Um, yeah. this, this book, After the Saucers Landed, it is, I mean... Uh, let me just let me just be frank about it. It is a gem. I mean, this is something that is exactly what nerds like me get into and nerd out on. So, <laughs> okay. uh, that's so great. Let us let us begin with just a very general question. Okay. Um, people who don't know you, who don't know this book, who don't know your work. I mean, I hate to start out in this way because it's sort of a lame-ass way to start a you know interview with an author. But tell us a little bit about the general concept of the book, um, and you know, just to introduce people to some of the ideas. Okay. Well, before I tell you about the book, I just want to say thanks for that great introduction. I'm a fan of this philosopher, left philosopher Slavoj Žižek, and whenever he's introduced in a, and complimented a lot in, in his introduction, he always says. That um, that it was a castrating experience because, of course, he doesn't recognize himself and and all the high praise that he gets. So, uh, thank you for the castrating experience of that introduction. Uh, well, I've been I've been known to commit a castration or two. Yeah. Okay. So, secondly, um, what is what is this book after the saucers landed? Well, I'm a I'm a science fiction writer, and you know, before we started, you asked me if there's anything. I wanted you to add to my intro, and I, I didn't think of it, but I will think of it. I thought of it while you were speaking, which is that I should mention, I have to promote this, that the book was nominated 
for the Philip K. Dick Award, um, so which is an award given to the best paperback in science fiction of each year. I don't have any expectation to win that, but I was nominated. And mentioning that is a good way to sort of start your way towards understanding what the book is. It's a science fiction novel. I'm a huge fan of Philip K. Dick, so there are too. Um, aspects to the book that reflect that that love of of his writing. And it's a story. It tells the story of a ufologist, which is someone who studies the possibility that uh, the UFOs are real, you know, um, and, and investigates flying saucers. Um, it's a story of a, fly, a, a ufologist who's also an artist um, uh, from an art movement called Fluxus. And his uh, co-writer um, named uh, Brian Johnson and their experiences after the saucers land. So uh, all of his theories have proven to be at least somewhat true. There are flying saucers. There are aliens. They, have, they do visit. They, they even land on the White House lawn. And uh, it's the story of what happens after. And the, the, int- the beginning of the book is all about how disappointing yeah. it is to have um, your lifelong ambitions come, come to pass and how... Uh, the, the ufologist is not at all pleased with the kind of aliens that turn out to be uh, real and who, who land on the White House lawn. They're the kinds of aliens that come from the 50s contactee lore, the Nordic-type aliens in sequined uh, uniforms and uh, you know, who want to impart sort of New Age nuggets of, of wisdom uh, you know, and bring us all aboard their, their mothership to give us uh, – their, their wisdom from beyond the stars and all that kind of thing. And he finds it to be hokey and, and outlandish and, and uh, tacky, even if it is true. So that's, a, that's the premise of the book. Yeah, and you know, it's something that in 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 some ways it strikes a chord on a pop cultural level. I mean, you know, for people who maybe uh, don't get you know too into the 1950s style things, you could think of something almost like a like a B movie, whether a Plan Nine from Outer Space, like Ed Wood, or even Tim Burton's Mars Attacks, or that level of cheesiness, that cheese factor, as if it were real, and it happens in in quote unquote reality. And what that would do to somebody like a ufologist, somebody who has dedicated their lives to that, and how this impacts their ways of not only seeing their own life's work, but of seeing their interactions with the rest of the world. I mean, how it would change expectations. Right, yes. And and uh, what it does for the uh, ufologist who's at the center of my novel is it, it ha- basically he gives up on, on the study of flying saucers and becomes even more cynical than he was at the start, which is hard to imagine. Yeah. Um, and uh, he turns back to producing art and actually just reproducing the art that he was made famous for you know, from early on in his career. So he's just making facsimiles of his earlier works um, as the novel starts. There's something really funny too in 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 the book, and I I despise when people give any kind of spoilers. So no worries, people. I'm not going to give any spoilers. But there is something that was in in my mind as I was reading it, and then magically references made to it in the book, and that's the the the, the famous song by uh, Peggy Lee. Is that all there is? You know, is that all there is? <laughs> right. You know, and and. Yeah. 
it struck me because it is such a personal thing just for myself, having had many experiences in life where you conceive of what something is going to be like. And then when it happens, it's just it it just totally falls flat. And how that how that experience changes a person. And that is kind of one of the running themes of this book. And I think people can identify with that even outside of the context of UFOs and sci-fi or whatever. It's just such a, a human experience. Right. And, you know, my previous book, which was uh, Billy Moon, was all about the um, strikes of May 1968 and uh, about... Uh, it was the main character was Christopher Robin Milne, and he, you know, is the the basis for Christopher Robin and the Winnie the Pooh stories. His father, A. A. Milne, wrote those stories, and I had him uh, involved in the strikes of May 1968, precisely because he was a character who had become fed up with fantasy and was more accepting of the mundane and the disappointing, and I felt that. Um, one of the, the reasons why radical movements failed, like the movements in, in May of 1968 uh, in Paris, one of the reasons they failed was because they could never gel around an idea that could really come into existence. It always had to be uh, a, an imaginary kind of fantasy uh, version of, of life, of, of an imaginary uh, society, uh, in order to keep the flames of rebellion going. Whereas, you know, anything that would actually come from a real revolution would have that quality of, of, of disappointment, would have to come along with a kind of a deflationary experience uh, as it came into being. Even if it was much better than what we'd had before, it, there would still be the reality of just life. And um, uh, accepting that uh, was something that Christopher Robin in that book uh, was sort of trying to bring to the students in, in, the, in the streets of Paris in May of 1968. And then, so I'm, I'm writing about something similar in this book, although in an entirely different way. Yeah. And again, I mean, just to return to this point that it is, it, it is in some ways very, um, it is, I, I'm not speaking from your perspective, but just as a reader, it is a very personal experience because on the one hand, the book is at least one of the central themes is about identity. It's about what identity means, how identity is formed and shaped. At the very at the same time, it was personal just for me in thinking about myself and where I am in my own life and the decisions that I make and how that impacts my future, you know, how I conceived of my future future uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago when, you know, when I was a teenager versus the life that I actually have and the life that I've, that I'm leading and that the course of my life as it will be in the future. And that sort of inherent tension is exactly, I think, uh, what is related in the book. And that's why, at least one of the many reasons why the book really resonates for me. Right. And I guess we can spoil this much, um, that the aliens who arrive, have uh, an ability or seem to have an ability to influence human beings quite dramatically. They can, uh, and in fact, um, arrange things so that people will change identities. So may, the way I think of it is if they were, if you had an alien, one of these Pleiadians at your um, cocktail party, it very well could be that one of the guests switch places with the host during the party without knowing it or is made to switch places so that uh, the host will go home with the wife of one of the guests and one of the guests will stay in the house and clean up after the party without ever knowing that they've switched roles because 
their identities are actually only activities or ways of you know moving about the world and and operating in the world there's not they're not really fixed to the the physical and yeah and and the the other thing about that too though that I think complicates it even further or makes it more interesting in a sense is that on the one hand there's there is an identity switching at the same time it's a it's a tension between well are they actually switching or is it the perception of switching in other words what is what is the authentic identity versus how a person is perceived by others that i think tension is also kind of running throughout this book and while it could get confusing in one sense who's who and the the switching of identities at the same time there is something seemingly constant and that is this question of perception right there's two things that are constant or almost completely constant in the book one is that question of perception the other is um who's telling the story so no matter how much switching goes goes on you're anchored in brian um johnson's uh perspective and you know at least for ninety percent of the of the novel um and uh, that that point of view the 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 perception of the of the narrator um becomes important in the book and and the other thing too that that comes across is this this question of form and what form means and how forms actually relate to the way that we perceive things so there's a question of how normal human beings on earth perceive things versus how these aliens when they come perceive things and this gets into and again I'm not going to go too deep into the elements of the book but this gets into a lot of you know art historical uh, territory about you know uh, a form and purity of form and expression of form this also gets into a sort of philosophical realm and I know you uh, have such uh, an extensive background in philosophy and it's one of your interests that I couldn't help but thinking throughout the book all of the different postmodern critical theory that I think fits into this whether talking about Foucault or whether talking about Baudrillard and the question of the hyperreal all of these things or even Roland Barthes for that matter and Derrida I mean we could go on and on signs and signifiers and all of the rest of that it's all woven together in a very complex narrative that I mean, when you said Philip K. Dick, I, I, I couldn't help but think of Dick and think of a book like Ubik and, and the question of authenticity. All mm-hmm. of these things are woven together in this really interesting fabric. Right. I, I relate to Philip K. Dick a lot because like him, I have a, a, an interest in philosophy. Um, but I, and also like him, I, I don't, I'm not a, an academic. So I'm sort of an autodidact uh, philosopher. I mean, I have a bachelor's degree in philosophy uh, and I'm a publisher now of critical theory books um, but I'm always sort of trying to make the philosophy as easy and as simple as I can just so I can understand it so writing a science fiction novel about the problem of identity and perception is sort of one way I, I go at trying to just understand the problem um, I don't know if I helped anybody but myself with this one but um, <laughs> uh, but yeah yeah uh, um it's interesting to me because let's let's just back up for a second. Science fiction 
Um, a lot of people, for whatever you know, for whatever reasons, they just they don't get into it. They've never been into it or whatever. But I think that there's something that is missed by a lot of people that science fiction. Sometimes it's it's about science, it's about you know ideas and things like that. But in in a sense, it's all oftentimes a conduit for political ideas and philosophical ideas. And I think that that is rather than a subtextual element of your book, it is in many ways front and center because the book is about all of those concepts that we've talked about, but it's also about politics. It's about identity and what identity means and how that forms our politics and how that forms our views of the world. Yeah. And in the, um, artist's character, the, the ufologist, um, it has a history of being involved with an art movement which saw itself very much as being political. Um, Fluxus, which was uh, uh, trying to create uh, happenings where um, people would live um, directly and escape the structures and forms of the society they were in. They would make small art, jokey art. They were kind of anti-artists often enough. And searching after something authentic and something natural and spontaneous was always a part of the Fluxus tradition, um, even as odd as it sometimes would be and as, as strange as some of the art ended up being. You know, Yoko Ono is a Fluxus artist, for example, and, you know, her work is not necessarily natural and, and accessible, but it's always, it's always aiming at the spontaneous and the direct there's something else about the book that I found really interesting is that it's almost like a play on our contemporary history in a sense because the 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 action of the book or the main action of the book takes place in in 1991 um you know right at the uh, you know right at the the moment at which well, I guess it's right around when George W. George H. W. Bush's term is ending, Bill Clinton's term beginning, right around there. But we know historically what that moment is. That's the beginning of the quote-unquote post-Soviet uh, political landscape. And yet in this book, that is removed, and in its place, it's the post-aliens landing landscape. And so there's this sort of right. additional political historical element to it that's un- inescapable. Yeah, what do you think that means? Because you know, having written the book, I definitely did that intentionally, but I'm not sure what it what it actually the consequences are of replacing the collapse of the Soviet Union with the the landing of the aliens. I, I you know, I'm hard put to give you an explanation of why I did that. So well, I'm, I mean, just you know, without without you know getting too indulgent about it, the way that the way that I interpreted that is that. As with the collapse of the Soviet Union in, in, in our world, the collapse of the Soviet Union through the quote-unquote West into an identity crisis, that its mm-hmm. identity had been formed in contra, you know, contradistinction or in juxtaposition against the Soviet Union, capitalism versus socialism, the, the, the good guys versus the bad guys, you yeah. know, and, and that when that collapsed and when that ended, there was this need to form a new identity for the West, something something new out of the remnants of the old and I feel like that is kind of what's happening in the book albeit with this aliens coming to earth forcing us to question and to challenge uh the very nature of our identities yeah I guess that's right I think that's right I um 
boy, my subconscious is clever, I guess, because, you know, <laughs> I, I, I did that, but without quite knowing exactly why. But isn't that the way that the best art is always created? I, I guess so. I'll, I'll say yes. Maybe not case. always, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's not get into intentionality. That's that's, <laughs> that's going too far. Yeah, right. um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I interpreted that. Now, there's something else here, though, that I think is 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 really quite interesting, and that's the question of philosophy. I mean, we've already touched on it a little bit, but your book, is, I mean, for lack of a better word, not to reduce it, but it's almost a book about philosophy and postmodern philosophy as it is like straight up science fiction. And I'm wondering how if people receive that, uh, I, I can imagine there are some sci-fi people if they're hard sci-fi guys or, you know, girls or who are reading it and who are like, what the hell am I reading? You know, yeah. so I'm just I'm wondering how that's been received. It has not been. Re- OK, it's been nominated for a major award for, you know, in paperback for, for science fiction and paperback. So it's been received well. Uh, in some quarters. On the other hand, some readers, as you say, had been alienated. One of the first reviews I got was somebody saying, I can't believe this book was written. <laughs> it seems like it was somebody's, uh, you know, this should be in a college course, not on the science fiction shelf. Um, you know, I, one of the characters, when the, what did he say? When the FBI man started talking about Descartes, I threw the book on the floor. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so um, there that you know it it isn't a, a, a just a neat and perfect fit into science fiction as it is you know and and it doesn't meet all of the expectations that a science fiction novel is supposed to meet um i mean i i tried to do that as much as i could to meet all those expectations but obviously some readers have found that the philosophical side of it uh it is off-putting um I've tried to kind of come to terms with that and realize not you know that I can uh, I can accept that I'm an acquired taste but there are a few there are I have a, a little cadre of people you know a fan base of people who who like this and they tend to be people who are not only interested in science fiction but maybe are also interested in um philosophy and maybe are interested in what zero books is publishing and who might listen to my podcast or your podcast um so I would say the left side and the philosophical left side of, of uh, the science fiction readership likes this book better than, uh, than I don't know, uh, the people who are reading it for just escapism. They, they, they're, that's not, they're not getting their fix there. Yeah, and, and that's, what, that's something that really struck me, you know, because I, I mean, I've, been, I've actually been kind of on a little bit of a sci-fi kick recently, not, not exclusively, but, you know, um, I think I was mentioning to you before we, before we were recording about Kim Stanley Robinson and having read Mars Trilogy and, you know, reading some of his other books as well. And this is very much not that kind of science fiction. I mean, this is something I think quite unique. And again, Philip K. Dick, I think, is a really great parallel here because it is it is sort of this exploration of themes that are not exclusively science fiction like for instance you read through after the saucers landed there's no advanced technology if anything you're way behind where we are even today you know what i mean it's right. it's it's like cornball sort of like you know cheesy 1950s low budget type science fiction stuff and 
some people, you know, like that for the kitschy, you know, element to it, the sort of the pop silly element to it. But I think that there's something even more, dare I say, philosophically substantive to it, because it is, again, bringing us back to this question of what is authentic? What is authentic science fiction? Right. I, I think that this is authentic science fiction, my my book. I think that, um, uh, you know, there's a spectrum of what people want from science fiction. And someone like Kim Stanley Robinson, um, he, his books are philosophical oh, and, definitely. and thoughtful I, as I was well. Not, I was not suggesting they're not, but in right. a very different kind of way. But not in the – they're not as front and center. They're basically right. – uh, a lot of science fiction is written as realist fiction, mm-hmm. even though it's – aimed at the future that doesn't exist, even though there's a fantasy element. When you read it, it's, you're supposed to read it as if it's really happening and as if it um, could happen. And I don't tend to write stories like that. I'm, uh, my next novel might be closer to that. I have a, a deal now for another one. But um, I'm constantly doing things that some readers find annoying, like kind of reminding the reader that, yes, they're reading a novel. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I have this sort of anti-realist stance towards the novel um, and, and just towards art in general. I think I like that kind of work. Um, so that is probably the element that really sets it apart from other literary and thoughtful writers in the genre who just uh, are in some ways better craftsmen because they don't show you the seams of their of their narratives as much. They don't... Uh, keep reminding you that you're reading a, a book and asking you to read certain segments of the book critically instead of, you know, in a, in a way where you're Im- immersed in it. Well, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that you're necessarily being self-deprecating here, but I think that uh, to be to be fair, your book is almost, it's not only is it, it's showing the seams, you know, to use that metaphor, but the seams are like a fundamental feature of the book, you know, in, yeah, in, right. in a sense, because like there's so many elements where, you know, the, the, the timeline, for example, it's, it not only is it nonlinear, but there's whole pieces missing. And there's a very great scene in the book where literally you're the, one of the characters is consciously talking about cutting holes in their own perception, cutting <laughs> holes in time. And that's literally what's happening. So it's, I mean, dare, <laughs> dare I say self-referentially postmodern, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's funny is that term postmodern is one that, uh, I used a lot uh, to describe my own work, and it's out there around me. But as in the last few years, as I've gotten more like overtly philosophical in my writing, I'm less and less comfortable with that uh, as a as a term. I just want to, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not upset about it being used. But I actually think that this book is modern in a way that uh, uh, that it's maybe unique because I, what I'm taking seriously in it are questions that come from. Descartes and Hegel, but Hegel's big for me now because I, I did this Herculean uh, effort to read the phenomenology of spirit, and so I throw that around like, because it's like one of the big accomplishments of my <laughs> life. And um, uh, so uh, I would say that this book actually seems postmodern, but that postmodernism uh, sort of shrugs off some of the consequences of the development of philosophical thought from Kant on and that this book is sort of returning to, or I am returning. I don't know how well this book is doing it, but I I try to return to the questions that 
Descartes and Hegel and Barclay and Philip K. Dick were raising around perception, which uh, I think postmodernism pretends are more easily solved than they are, that they're, and tries to pretend that they're mostly social issues rather than philosophical issues, that there is no such thing as a properly philosophical issue or universal problem, but just a problem of capitalism or a problem of industrial society or a problem of this or that. Right. That's, and, that is rooted in discourse and systems of knowledge. Right. And that's right. And that's partly true. The, the trouble is, is that there is no reality without a system of knowledge. There is no we, – it's not as though we can get away from the system of knowledge to an ultimate reality. We have to make do with, with the systems of knowledge that we have and we can find, I think, universal truths within systems of knowledge. So and, – and that's what I tried to do in this book. But you're – you know, you maybe aren't quite at the point where I – before this started, you said you maybe had like 20 pages left of the book. <laughs> yeah. So uh, hopefully the last page we'll go, oh, he's not postmodern after all. But um, we'll see. I I it, I was debating before I did this – before I did this interview, I was debating, should I – cram to finish this book I before know, I good. do the interview and then I was like no I'm going to leave it for myself to really savor the end no no it's fine I mean and and, I, and you know I've only had one person actually approach me and say hey is this what the ending meant and uh, they were right uh, most people sort of shrug or a big question mark appears over their head which is a strange thing makes me think I'm living in a cartoon world but um, <laughs> when they get to the end but uh, yeah Let's um let's take a quick break and um on the other side of the break a lot more to t- touch on um yeah I mean it's a, again let me let me just plug it again Douglas Lane is the author of the book After the Saucers Landed available from uh well this is actually from Nightshade Books correct right. yes that's right Nightshade Books available from Nightshade Books available all over the place online and is it available through your website as well. You can go to my website and find a link to Amazon. Um, right. You could go to the Nightshade Books page and find a lot of different ways to get it. Um, you could go to the library and check it out probably. Library? What's that? Uh, yeah. No, I, I, I'm a big advocate for the library. So if, if your library doesn't have uh, After the Saucers Landed, you should request it. You should demand it with pitchforks and torches. All right. <laughs> on the other side of the break, continue the conversation. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
Counterpunch Radio chatting with Douglas Lane again the book after the saucers landed um I, I mean it is it is a quick read in a sense although I, I I have to say honestly I I feel like I could have read the book a lot faster but I've really kind of taken it slow because there's so many layers to it I think and yeah I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass I really do mean that yeah. um now I want to ask you this question um there's some there's there's a lot of art and art movements and art history sprinkled throughout this book. And that particularly interests me. That's what my bachelor's degree is in. I've spent a lot of time studying it. Um, And there is this question of form and purity of form. And there's a lot of focus on Malevich and Lisitsky, two giants of the Soviet avant-garde period and the, the art movement known as suprematism, which mm-hmm. Malevich is, uh, you know, in, invented, I guess we could say. And I, I'd like to get you to talk a little bit about that because it's actually quite present even in the design of the cover of the book is very much in that style. So, what what is the intention if i can if i can say that yeah, behind yeah. bringing that up and about this question of form and purity of form and expression well i really i'm like you i'm a fan of the suprematists and um uh i i i'm fascinated as someone who's a a writer you know considers himself and is pretentious enough to even think of himself as an artist um i'm i'm drawn to this idea that artists could create revolutionary art and the suprematists were aiming at that. Um, so when I consider those works, um, I, I am not a scholar on this, so I sort of have impressions about them rather than fully drawn out arguments about them. But my feeling is, is that what they're hankering after is a form that would be, uh, that would get the, the main thing they wanted as revolutionaries was to get beyond the class system, to get beyond the the formal structure of society today um, and back then. Uh, and so they were looking for uh, a, a form for society and that they could represent in art that would get would would do that would get beyond the class system um, that would be um, whole in itself without. And that wouldn't need the split between the subject and the object or 
that wouldn't need the split between the master and the slave or the capitalist and the worker. Yeah. Um, and so this is what they tried to create on, on the canvas were pure forms, one-sided forms. Um, I think the work was really interesting and, uh, and I think that it's, you know, it's great. It will last. It's going to be continued. You know, people will continue to look at it and, and think about it. Um, my perspective is that you can get out of the economic class system that we're in, but that we're not going to be able to get out of the uh, kind of class system that defines perception. Um, it's not really a class system. <laughs> That's just a, the economic manifestation of it. But the division, the split between subject and object, between the perceiver and the world, uh, that's, that's not something that can be overcome and that it, it wasn't overcome by the suprematists uh, as much as they aimed at that. Well, um, one thing I will say about that, and um, there's an interesting, there's an interesting um, thing happening here because one of the artists you mentioned is L. Lisitsky, and Lisitsky kind of had uh, one foot in suprematism, one foot in constructivism. He was sort of seen as this kind of go-between between a couple of the different strains of the Soviet avant-garde, and it's absolutely true that the overriding, I guess we could say, conceptual uh, dynamic of the Soviet avant-garde period is the the attempt to destroy what they called and what Mayakovsky called and, and, and Tatlin and Rodchenko. They all called the division between art and life, that right. art was no longer supposed to be separated from life, but rather that the two were supposed to be united. And that when you're talking about uh, revolution in the art, you're talking about the smashing of the delineation between art and life, just as the Bolsheviks were talking about the smashing of the, uh, you know, of the bourgeoisie, the smashing of these class divisions and the mm -hmm. dictatorship of the proletariat. And so there is this element there. But I would also add the constructivists were also about creating art that smashed the delineation between the canvas and the viewer. In other words, that the art was not supposed to be solely trapped in a two-dimensional canvas, but rather mm. it was supposed to inhabit space. And that struck me in reading the book. I have no idea whether you intended that or not, but yeah. that there is this element of sort of this, the, the breakdown of this separation between subject and object happening in three dimensions. And in the book, it's happening with human beings. Right. Well, what's interesting there, okay, is that you, when you break that split between the viewer of the painting and the painting itself by introducing three-dimensional uh, aspects to the work, say. You are not breaking the fundamental split between the subjectivity of the, of the viewer and the objectivity of the artwork. You're simply bringing the artwork into a new dimension, changing, Only... changing, let me, just, yeah, yeah. changing the uh, dimension in which the work is viewed uh, de making new demands upon the subject, but you're not changing or fundamentally aligning um, the artwork with the subject. And I don't think a true revolutionary would want to, because if you could really divorce or if you could erase the boundary, say, between um, the viewer of a film and the audience, then the audience would not know where the thoughts that the filmmaker had put forward ended and where their own thoughts began. There would be no 
distance and there would be no room for criticism and no room for progress there. So if you, you know, if we were truly a unified society on that level, then there, we would be a society that didn't change. Um, so uh, what you want to do, I think, is create a, awareness of the division, awareness of the, the split, um, and put the audience in the position of, in, of being aware of their own interpretation and being op- open to reinterpretation. Yeah, exactly. I agree with that. I just the only thing I would add to that is from the perspective of the artists of the time, um, part of the part of the attempt to uh, reconcile exactly what you're describing is by eliminating the notion of the object as art, but rather the 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 object as functional object in the real world. So the, yeah. what we look back historically and say, well, you know, Vladimir Totlin's monument to the third international what an incredible art art design but he didn't intend it that way he intended it to be a functional building that would actually have housed the political you know leadership or or what have you in other words that that the artwork ceases to be artwork when the um for lack of a better for, for lack of a better word when its objectness is taken away right and the, the another way to look at it is Rather than the erasure or destruction of art, it would be art's total domination of life. Yes, that's a great put. Yes, because instead of, it would replace the economic, it would replace the political, and life would be lived as an ascetic with ascetics and thought uh, being what organized our, our world, rather than these other aspects that we know now. Or um, yeah, exactly. Or that they're all inseparable from each other, that the art and the economic life and the political life of the new classless society as they envisioned it, that these were almost like interlocking gears of a larger system. Right. The thing about keeping the economic around and not supplanting it with art is being clear about designing some sort of economic system, maybe something like Paracon, where you've really gone beyond the, the logic of capitalist uh, production and beyond the the logic of of uh, a class society, um, and I, I think maybe the I, I would argue that that uh, if you're going to make art the dominant force in the world, that it would it would actually replace the economic rather than simply fit within it, uh, you know, or fit next to it or something. But mm-hmm. but you know, uh, these are nuances there. But uh, sure. Um, I know that we are kind of running out of time, and I, I definitely have to touch on one other subject okay. here, um, and and that is, and I understand the sort of the the pun is very much intended, and I'm sure it was with you as well. This question of alienation, right, <laughs> and and the yeah. the the sort of this tension about the individual and what it means to be a quote-unquote alienated individual. And at the very same time, as we're exploring the sort of alienation of, um, you know, one of the characters, or actually the alienation of all of the characters, we're also seeing the literal alienation that is taking place at the same time. So talk a little bit about that and, uh, you know, just what you're kind of trying to get across with that. Sure. Well, the main thing about the aliens in the book was that they weren't – they were actually offering escape from alienation. Right. That was their promise. You know, Come to us, surrender, and you will become 
uh, at one with the universe. You'll you'll stop seeing the division between yourself and the spiritual realm and the physical realm, and you'll you'll become free that way. And the characters uh, are struggling to hold on to their alienation in a sense um, against the alien presence. You know, they they want to remain Brian and um, Harold and Asket. These are the names of the characters. Some of them. And they they want to hold on to these identities in the face of a force that threatens to smash them to pieces, and uh, the book is about you know how that that gets resolved. It clearly it doesn't get resolved in any kind of overtly heroic way, <laughs> but um, I, I in the end I think uh, holding on to the power of of choosing an identity and forming your own identity is something that. Uh, I, I want the humans to have in this book and I want us to have as human beings. Yeah, definitely. And and the, the reason I bring it up, well, not the only reason, but one of the reasons I bring it up is because of this constant uh, discussion that goes on on the left when it comes to politics about the politics of identity and what identity means in relation to i mean specifically of course the you know radical leftist politics and the quote unquote supremacy of identity politics versus you know what might be traditionally have you know called class based politics and so forth and that i think because that conversation is so is ongoing and is so still controversial in many in many ways i found that also particularly fascinating in regards to this book Right. Well, one of the things I did in the book was pick up uh, Judith Butler's idea that identity is a performance and try to work out what that would mean if it was literally the case. Um, And where would identity be located there? And I sort of want to say what I want to argue is that the identity, that someone's identity isn't really only a matter of performance, that there is uh, something that is just, I'll call it subjectivity, which is pretty an empty concept but it's it's also really present in the world and that uh that that emptiness of 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 being a subject that not having a fixed perspective um not being truly weighted down by your your place of birth or the color of your skin or what kind of clothes you wear or how old you are but just being uh someone who can interpret and can act in the world and, and change the world through your interpretation uh, without being completely fixed by these performances. Um, that that's, that's the kind of identity that we need to hold on to as, as opposed to uh, these other identities which seem so important to us. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, it's, you know, I, I, I would hate for somebody listening to us having this conversation who hasn't read the book to think that somehow this is like a polemic against individual identity or something or or conversely no. or conversely that it's a polemic in favor of it or something like that. There's a interesting moment in the book and just to just to sort of touch on it. Um, the one of the characters is, I guess, for lack of a better term, going through an identity crisis where they're questioning what it means to be themselves, and they and and the character is reminded and asks the question in a very great way. He says, "Well, what about Christmas?" 
and he talks about you know and, he, and then he goes into talking about this very distinct memory of Christmas as a child and and it, it sort of draws out this idea that identity is not simply performance identity is not simply a construct identity is also a set of experiences that identity matters and that this desire to you know as you said maintain alienation is also an, a desire to hold on to that which makes a person's identity right the funny thing about that is i think he ends up though sort of losing christmas in this in yeah. this bargain but um but uh yeah it, 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 these things are deeply felt you know there's no doubt about it and some of my favorite moments in the book were writing it were calling upon my own experiences like that one i think that's one where i could say was actually based on real experience um Surprise, surprise, I have Christmas memories. And uh, uh, and uh, so I, I do think that it's important to recognize how deeply felt uh, our own identities are and our own experiences are and how we can't simply – we can't simply brush these aside for, you know – uh, paintings of of boxes or <laughs> triangles or yeah. you know some yeah. abstract form, um, but at the but we can get some distance from even these things and try to decide based on not only on our experience but on our in, interpretive power to what what we want to do next what what we want to be we don't have to remain and fixed by these experiences even as we take them into account. Definitely. All right. Before I let you go, I got to ask one last one last question. Um, you and I chatted briefly about the question of um, uh, cultural production and the importance of cultural production. And I specifically, I think we were in, in regards to literature. And I just want to get a sense of what is your feeling about that now, given the way that media has evolved, given the sort of uh, information overload that we have? Is there still a unique space for the production of the cultural object, such as a novel? I mean, obviously, you're producing a novel, so, and, you know, aside from it being a profession, there's, there's, there's a substance to it. You obviously feel that there's a value to this object in and of itself. So can you talk a little bit about this question of cultural production and what you think is the importance of having that discussion? Sure. Well, I think that the novel is still a living uh, art form. I think that... Um, it's not as dominant in the culture as it has been, obviously. Uh, I still like reading them and writing them. I, I sort of decided early on, this is one of those things, it's like an experience of Christmas. I became a novelist at the age of, well, or at least a, a, a fiction writer at the age of 18. That's when I published my first short story. So um, at this point, uh, writing fiction is just something that I, I do I don't have to – I don't sit down and consider, is this the best way to go forward? Maybe I ought to. <laughs> um, but the, the the other thing is I don't devalue podcasts or YouTube videos or blogs or any of the other things that compete for our attention. And I think that if people have time to sit down and read a novel, that that's going to be a very rich and rewarding experience, especially if it's not this one but a better one. But um, – <laughs> but, uh, but, no, but I don't want to toot my own horn too much, so false toot, modesty. Toot away. <laughs> but no, but I think reading a novel is obviously going to be more rewarding than reading a BuzzFeed blog post or something. However, we shouldn't just 
ignore the fact that the internet exists and that we have that we're inundated with information and, and production uh, and consider those all these things to be some problem. I think uh, we have an immense responsibility to make the most of, of all the different forms that we have and to try to think with all of them. So, um, I mean, you know, you don't have to sign up for every social media account that comes along. I'm not saying that. You don't have to do literally everything. But you, it's okay to enjoy reading a blog and enjoy watching a YouTube video. And uh, I understand, you know, I, I do that too. I fall into it myself. So I think that the novel has a place. It may not be as dominant as it was. It still is a great way to uh, kind of go deep on, uh, on ideas and – uh, I'll continue to write them as long as people will continue to publish them. Absolutely. You know, I just, I have tremendous respect. I have tremendous respect for novelists and, and for novels. My my background in creative writing is in poetry. It's something that always comes, came pretty easily to me. And when I try to sit down and write prose, try, you know, short stories or, or, or longer fiction, man, I, I really struggle. I really struggle through it. And I, I don't know if I can really pinpoint why and some of my friends uh you know who i who i did my creative writing program with will say exactly the opposite they're like i can't i can't do poetry i don't know how you do that i can't i can't do that but writing a story (laughs) sure i can do that right well i feel that way about poetry myself so my hat's off to you (laughs) well that's that's maybe that's for our next conversation okay (laughs) um let's let's leave it there i want to i want to get you out of here on time um douglas lane uh excellent excellent book after the saucers landed you gotta get the book get yourself a copy via amazon or wherever um or preferably from a local bookstore if you can find one and um let's see publisher of zero books follow the podcast zero books podcast the website douglaslane.com doug thanks for coming on the show hey thanks for having me again 